On December 5, 1985, Michael Broadbent stepped behind the podium in the West Room at Christie's Auction House in London. Today would be a highlight of his long career. He was technically the auctioneer, but in reality, he was one of the world's leading experts on wine. His palate was exceptional and his knowledge expansive. He had over the years sold and drank some very rare and some very old wine. Some of it was good, some of it was bad. But today, he would be offering a one of a kind wine for auction. His secretary, Lucy Gotzel, carefully removed a heavy, hand blown dark green bottle from a felt covered case. There was no label on the bottle, but etched into it was the word Lafitte, the name of the chateau or vineyard where it was produced, and underneath that, the letters TH period J period. Michael Broadbent wrote the text of the catalog that described this bottle. It, along with an uncertain number of other bottles, was discovered behind a bricked-up wall in an old building in Paris. The bottles came from one of the top 18th-century vineyards in France, according to the catalog. Quote, Evidence suggested that the wine had belonged to Thomas Jefferson. It could rightly be considered one of the world's greatest rarities. The level of the wine in the bottle was exceptionally high for such an old bottle, just a half inch below the cork. And the color of the wine, he wrote, was remarkably deep for its age. The wine's value, Broadbent wrote, was inestimable. He began the bidding at 10,000 pounds. The bids kept rising, and soon it became apparent that it was a battle between two men. In one corner, Christopher Kip Forbes, son of Malcolm Forbes, American gazillionaire and owner of Forbes magazine. And in the other corner, Marvin Schenken, the owner of Wine Spectator, the Bible of the wine world. It only took two minutes for the gavel to fall, and Kip Forbes, acting on behalf of his father, had bought the Jefferson bottle for the then record-breaking price of $157,000. The Forbes family was the proud owner of a bottle of wine once owned by America's third president, Thomas Jefferson. Or were they? The auction started a chain of events that would eventually entangle dozens of people around the globe. A pretentious German wine merchant, a rich American collector with a penchant for grudges and an unlimited bank account, and a former FBI agent, and teams of lawyers. So sit back and enjoy a New York sour and ask yourself, was this a once-in-a-lifetime find in a Paris building that was about to be demolished? Or a once-in-a-lifetime fraud committed by an arrogant, mysterious wine merchant? Over the next couple of years, other collectors sought out other Jefferson bottles. 
Marvin Shankin finally got his. A mysterious Middle Eastern businessman bought another. And in late 1988, an American entrepreneur named Bill Koch purchased four bottles for about $400,000. Koch was the son of Fred Koch, who founded, founded Koch Industries in Wichita, Kansas. His son, Bill, eventually sold his part of the company and began to indulge his penchant for collecting things, while his father and brothers mostly devoted their spare time to conservative political causes. Bill took his four bottles to his own large climate-controlled wine cellar. It was unthinkable that he would ever drink them. Well, I'd never shoot Custer's gun, which he also owned, by the way, would I? He would occasionally take them out and over the next 15 years and show them to his guests. One other thing about Bill Koch, he hated to be cheated. In 2005, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts prepared an exhibit of Koch's art and antique collection that was valued conservatively at several hundred million dollars. Koch's staff began to research the background of all the objects that would be on loan to the museum including the four Jefferson bottles. They quickly realized there was a problem. When they contacted Christie's, they were told that they relied on Michael Broadbent's assertion that the bottles were genuine. They contacted the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello. The curator, Susan Stein, asked her researcher, Cinder Goodwin, to investigate. Goodwin checked all of Jefferson's journals and receipts. He was, she said, meticulous about recording the most mundane things of his daily life. They found records of many different wine purchases, but nothing relating to the Jefferson bottles. There was something else curious about these bottles, Cinder Goodwin said. Jefferson would frequently sign his correspondence using his initials, but he didn't write TH period J period. He wrote TH colon. J period. She told Bill Koch's staff, we don't believe those bottles ever belonged to Thomas Jefferson. Suffice it to say that Bill Koch was upset. He hired a private investigator who contacted the Chicago wine stores who located the bottle for him. He learned that the person who supplied the bottle that was auctioned at Christie's on that December day in 1985 was a flamboyant German wine collector named Hardy Rodenstock. Hardy Rodenstock started out managing teen rock groups in the 1970s. There were rumors that he was part of the wealthy Rodenstock family, which manufactured high-end eyeglass frames. He would often give the frames to his friends. He also told people that he was a professor and that he had made a fortune in the stock market. He maintained homes in Munich and Bordeaux and Monte Carlo. He told people that he became interested in wine in the 70s. Some people, he told the story that he grew up in a poor family and his father and grandfather would let him taste wine when he was five or six years old. He told other people that he became interested in wine in college and would share vintages with his colleagues and students. But other people, he told, that one of his music groups had stiffed him and instead of paying him in money, they paid him with old wine. He told the group that he hated wine, that he mostly drank beer and schnapps, 
But when he got home and tasted it, he was hooked. His story, it seemed, changed with his audience. By 1980, Rodenstock had begun holding annual wine tastings for high-profile guests. He would open up old and rare vintages. He was obsessive about punctuality, and in another strange move, he barred his guests from spitting their wine out during the tasting. He made them drink everything that he poured. You don't spit away history, he yelled. Some guests, looking back on it, would comment that that was strange. It seemed he always served his best wines last. After all, the guests were really too drunk to fully understand what they were tasting. Rodenstock basked in the celebrity of the Jefferson bottles. It began in the spring of 1985 when he said he received a phone call from Paris about an interesting discovery. Someone, it seems, had found some dusty old bottles engraved with the letters THJ. Rodenstock would never reveal the identity of that mysterious caller, nor would he reveal the address where the bottles were found, nor would he say how many bottles there were. Sometimes, when asked, he would say, oh, there were a dozen or so. Other times, he would say, oh, there were about 30. As the decade went on, it turned out that Rodenstock was either the luckiest man in the world or that he had a nose for old wine because he kept finding bottles of old, rare vintages. He found a rare 1929 in Scotland, a hundred cases of an old Bordeaux in Venezuela. In Russia, he said, he found the Tsar's lost cash of 19th century wine. He would sell some of the wine and keep others for his annual tastings. He soon became known as the go-to guy for old rare wine. He made sure that people like Robert Parker and Michael Broadbent were able to taste some of this rare wine. Rather than be suspicious of him, they were indebted to him. They knew it was probably the only way they would ever get to taste 200-year-old wine. Bill Koch had never been invited to one of Rodenstock's tastings, but he did meet him at Christie's New York offices in 2000. Hi, I'm Bill Koch. I bought some wine for, from you. They shook hands, but according to Koch, Rodenstock looked uncomfortable and hurried away. Something wasn't passing the smell test, Koch thought. He reached out to a private investigator named Jim Elroy, a former FBI agent who specialized in fraud investigations. When he told him about Rodenstock and the Jefferson bottles, Elroy said, If you want your money back, I'll get it. Well, Coke wouldn't mind getting his money back, but that wasn't that big of a deal. It was only half a million dollars, after all. No, Coke wanted something else. I want to lock him up. Saddle up. Elroy assembled his team, a former Scotland Yard inspector in England, a former MI5 agent in Germany, and several wine experts in Europe and the United States. And in case you think this was expensive, you're right. Koch has spent over $35 million trying to get the guy who he said swindled him out of 400000 When Rodenstock found out that Elroy was looking into the bottles, he took the offensive. He began writing to Monticello, attacking Cinder Goodwin's credibility. Michael Broadbent also wrote Goodwin, vouching for the authenticity of the bottles and for Rodenstock's reputation. 
Elroy soon learned that other purchases of Rodenstock's wine were suspicious as well. In 1991, a German collector named Hans Perer Fricks bought a Jefferson bottle. When he tried to resell it at Sotheby's, that auction house refused, stating doubts about its authenticity. Frerich sent it to a Munich lab for carbon dating. The lab discovered mixtures of carbon-14 and centium and tritium. These are isotopes that were produced by nuclear bomb tests in the 1940s and 50s. The lab determined that the wine in the bottle had to have been dated by 1962 or later because that's when nuclear tests in the atmosphere stopped. Frerich sued Rodenstock, and the court ruled that Rodenstock either mixed the wine with newer wine or sold fake wine. Rodenstock appealed the court's judgment but later settled with Frerichs out of court. Elroy's German team also discovered that Harley Rodenstock was in fact a fictitious name. He was really Meinhard Gurk, the son of a local railroad official. They interviewed his mother and learned that he trained as an engineer and worked at the German Federal Railway. They interviewed a former girlfriend and learned that he also had two sons from a previous marriage. By the time she met him, he had developed his fascination with wine. Elroy was curious about Rodenstock's ability to possibly mix old and new wine. His team tracked down an old landlord in Munich. After Rodenstock moved out, the landlord went to clean the apartment and discovered a collection of empty wine bottles and new wine labels. Now came the battle of the experts. Rodenstock ordered his own carbon dating tests, and those experts said that they found no cesium-137 in the bottle. Elroy contacted another lab on the Italian border, and they too found no cesium in the bottle. That meant that the wine was at least older than 1943 when the first atomic tests were conducted. Elroy was crushed. On the way home, he reached into his briefcase and took out one of the Jefferson bottles and he began to run his hand over the engraving. He immediately recognized the engraving as a tool mark. When he landed, he took the bottle to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia. They led him to an engraver named Max Erlocker and a retired FBI tool expert named Bill Albrecht. Albrecht and Erlocker went to Bill Koch's estate and examined the bottle. Elroy wanted to know if the engraving was done with a copper wheel the type that would have been used in the 18th century. A copper wheel used a foot pedal, and the engraver would hold the bottle and spin it around the copper blade. Erlocker and Albrecht determined that it couldn't have been done with a copper wheel based on the depth of the etching and the slant of the letters. It was too perfect. They concluded that it was done with a dental drill or a common tool called a dremel. Elroy went to a local hardware store and bought a Dremel drill and took it home and got an old wine bottle, and he said, within two hours, I was able to reproduce the engraving. On August 31st, 2006, Bill Koch sued Hardy Rodenstock. His attorneys deposed Michael Broadbent, who said that he believed the bottles were real, but that despite him asking Rodenstock numerous times to tell him who sold the bottles, Rodenstock never would. Rather than appear in court, Hardy Rodenstock wrote a letter to the judge saying that he was not a citizen of the United States, that the bottles were sold in England, 
and therefore the courts had no jurisdiction over them, and he refused to appear. The judge entered a default judgment against Hardy Rodenstock. Jim Elroy is convinced that Rodenstock is a con man. No one will ever know how much wine Hardy Rodenstock sold. Elroy believes that he could have easily made a million dollars a year. As for Bill Cope, well, in 2007, he told a reporter, I used to brag that I got the Thomas Jefferson wines. Now I get to brag that I have the fake Thomas Jefferson wines. Thanks, Dad. That's such a good story. I love a good uh, fraud story, you know. Nice little break from the blood and the guts. Right. No, no murder here. No, uh, no tragedy. Just a gazillionaire getting conned down of you know, half a million bucks or so. But, you know, right. he could afford it. And um, clearly, because he spent a lot more trying to take the guy down. He did indeed. Rodenstock, Rodenstock died about three years ago. And uh, I don't know if we'll ever know the true story of these bottles. They're They're floating all over the place. And to actually test them, you would have to open a bottle. And I mean, and who wants to open the bottle that you paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for? So right. I think Bill Koch's right. You've either got some real Jefferson wine or you've got some really good fake Jefferson wine. Either way, it makes a great story at a party. Exactly. Still some history. Good story and some history. So. Yes. Because this case didn't really have a um, an obvious fashion connection. I thought for our trends of the crime section, which is where we normally talk about fashion, I would talk about the closest thing I could, which is cute wine labels Ah. and the history of wine labels. And I thought that was really interesting. Yes. I mean, you, you, of course, could have talked about the Rodenstock eyeglass frames. I could have. You could have talked about what really rich guys wear, but no, I I like the wine label thing. That's that's good. There are some fun wine labels out there. I've uh, got a a bottle downstairs that I'm going to take home, the rosé that we drank today. Yes, fortunately, it's now empty. Yes, it's obviously empty because it was us drinking it, and it's covered in pink flowers, and I'm going to put flowers in it. There you go. Or something. Right in your wheelhouse. Exactly. So there is a history of wine labels. They weren't always cute. And wine labels date all the way back to 1550 BC, and they were introduced in Egypt. Seals and etchings, they were hieroglyphs in Egypt, obviously. They were originally placed on bottles to make trade easier. They also signified the year, type, and qualities of the wines. These labels eventually became a thing of importance, and that was proven when King Tut's burial site was excavated. His site included bottles from only certain years, so he kept only the wines that he liked, and he was able to know which ones he liked based on the labels. Wine trade in Europe started booming in the 18th century, and the labels at this time were printed onto parchment paper and tied around the bottlenecks. So think of like a hang tag or like a gift tag. With the invention of the lithograph in 1798, the labels could be produced in mass quantities. This led to increased use of color and artistic design. 
In 1970s Europe, winemakers began working with famous artists like Picasso and Chagall to create awe-inspiring bottle labels that would properly represent the quality and unique artistry of the product within. There are numerous print methods and design styles used today on bottle labels. Most labels include any accolades the vintner has received, the region, the grape, the year, and beautifully designed branding. All labels must comply with the Alcoholic Beverage Labeling Act, which is basically the Surgeon General warnings and all that fun stuff. Yes, and in the United States, at least, the Bureau of uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Fireworks, our friends at the ATF, also require that every bottle of wine disclose the alcohol by volume content. So, mm-hmm. I got all this information from... Bottle Labels, a history lesson Hmm. from Blue Label Packaging Co., which is a cool company. They will work with like just a, what do you call it? Like a freelance winemaker and make their labels for them. Do you just, I'm going to just throw you on here. I don't know if you've even thought about it. I don't know the answer. Well, no. Have you, do you have any uh, particularly... Uh, particular wine labels that you really like or that stood out to you? Any funny ones or? Um... I know the funny one you're thinking of, so I'll let you say that one. Oh, well, the funny one I thought you'd be thinking of is the wine called um, Pinot Envy. Oh, yes. Pinot Envy. Yeah. It's got Sigmund Freud on the uh, on the label. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'll I let like, you all like decide why that's funny <laughs> amongst yourselves. Took me a minute. Dad had to literally tell me why it was funny. Um, one that I just picked up, it was a cheap bottle of like rosé sangria, but the bottle was really cool. It had white polka dots etched onto it. And then the opening was like, a. am showing you, Dad. Maybe you have a word for it. You know, when you like flip the metal up and it pops out, it's like like how you would open like a canning jar kind of. I I know what you mean, but I don't know the word for it. No. Well, it's it's the type of opening for a jar. If anyone knows what I'm talking like about, like a mason jar. Oh, I know what you screw. mean. Yeah like, yeah. yeah, like the the clamp that yes, you. Yes. Okay. Clamp. Yeah. So it opened like that. I thought that was neat. Yeah. I kept yeah. that bottle too. Okay. How about you? Any labels that stick out? You know, uh, there there's a wine out there called Nineteen Crimes. It's kind of a cheap ten dollar wine, but. Uh, they have a hologram on their label, so you can uh, actually you can go to their website and open up a get an app and uh, point your camera at it, and a little hologram pops up with uh, you know someone in the uh, getting off a ship in Australia, going to the prison camps and things like that. So I thought that was pretty cool. That's one that stands out. Yeah, those are creative, and those are real crimes that happened. And mm-hmm. yeah. It's kind of neat. You get to read the whole story with the app. Mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing how labels evolve with technology, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're already starting. So, Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about this week's cocktail. Well, I thought I could just get a bottle of wine and pour it into a glass, but that wouldn't really be fun. Or I thought about, well, I could make some sangria, but, Eh. eh, you know, and I'm not really into sangria. Um, So... I just did some research for wine-based cocktails, and I found one that looks pretty cool. It's called a New York Sour. It is, uh, it's going to be some rye whiskey, simple syrup, and lemon juice, 
And that is basically a whiskey sour, or as someone calls it, adult lemonade. Uh, but a New York sour, uh, well, a Boston sour has that plus egg whites, so it gets that nice little foam on top. And then the New York sour, in addition to the egg whites, we're also going to take some red wine and just pour it over the top of the spoon, and that's going to give us a, uh, a three-color layer. The egg whites on top, the wine is going to settle between the egg whites and uh, the rest of the drink, so it's going to be red, and then we'll have the the uh, amber-colored bourbon and, and lemonade. So we'll be Ooh. doing the New York Sour. You're going to make that today? I am going to make that today. How do you make the, how do you do the egg whites? Well, I mean, I know egg whites. You just you <laughs> whip them up? No. Well, you do the egg whites uh-huh. and we're going to pour that in the shake, pour all the ingredients except the wine in the shaker. And we're going to do a dry shake. No ice. Just shake it for about 30 seconds. That's going to get the egg whites all foamy. It's going to break up the protein. Uh, then we're going to put the ice in the shaker, shake it for about another five or 10 seconds, uh, pour it over a glass, and uh, then we're going to take uh, the bar spoon and pour the wine over the back of the spoon and let it just gently fall and waft down into the rest of the cocktail. Cool. Will you be using my farm fresh eggs? Unf- Did you bring some nope. today? Well, I used the last of your farm fresh eggs this morning for breakfast. So no, we'll be using Darn. some chicken eggs. It'll probably taste horrible. Probably. Yes. Just so kidding. I'm going to have you drink it first. And if you die, <laughs> then I'll know not to take a sip. Perfect. But that's our cocktail for today, the New York Sour. That sounds delicious. I can't wait to watch you make that too. So we'll put up a video like normal. Well, we had a lot of interesting players in in this week's We did. Uh, lots crime. of big names. Lots of big names. Let's well, start, talk about some of them. Yeah. Let's start talking about the Forbes family. We all know about Forbes magazine and the Forbes, like 30 under 30, all that stuff. Well, I had never thought about the people behind Forbes magazine until this. Uh, So the Forbes family obviously founded the Forbes Publishing Company, and they were also big into art collecting. Kip Forbes worked with his father, Malcolm, in restoring Chateau de Balleroy, don't know how to pronounce that, in Normandy, France, and the old... uh, Oh, this is English. Okay. Old Battersea House. (laughs) Battersea. Battersea. No, it's British, Dad. Oh, Battersea. Battersea House in London, England. Oh, quite. Quite. Kip has written numerous books and catalogs about art and collecting, including Fabergé, the Forbes Collection, co-authored with Robin Tromure and published by Hugh Lothair. Lothair. I don't know how to speak French. Steve Forbes, who is Kip's brother, has run for the U.S. presidency multiple times and written some in-depth political and economic narratives. Do you know anything else about the Forbes family? It's pretty surface level. Yeah, I mean, not not any more than that. I mean, they're they're conservatives and involved in in politics, uh, not to the extent of the Koch family, but, uh, uh, you know, very... Uh, very involved in the whole economic life of this country, from Forbes magazine to uh, their ratings for certain investments. So, been around forever. Now, I didn't know about Steve Forbes running for president. When was the last time he ran? Do you know? 
I was he Republican? Is he Republican? Yeah, he's a Republican. I think he ran. Oh boy, uh, it may have been. He may have entered the primaries in '08. Maybe I'm not sure off the top of my head. Mm. I don't know. Just curious. Yeah. Let's chat about the Koch family. They're ah, they're pretty close to home. They are. I remember hearing lots about them growing up, but I didn't know all this. Uh, so this family is best known for their business and for their political activities, mainly opposing climate change legislation. Love to see it. Sarcasm. Uh, donating to libertarian criminal justice reform and Republican Party causes. Coke Industries is the largest privately owned company in the U.S. with 2019 revenues of 115 billion with a B dollars. The family business was started by Fred C. Coke in 1940 in Wichita, Kansas, which is about three hours from where we are right now. Fred developed a new cracking method for the refinement of heavy crude oil into gasoline. By 2019, Charles Koch and David Koch, a.k.a. the Koch brothers, were the only ones of Fred's four sons still with Koch Industries. Charles and David built a political network of libertarian and conservative donors, and the brothers funneled financial revenue into TV and multimedia advertising. Yeah, and when, when uh, Bill left the company, um, it was not a, um, it was not a, um, a friendly parting of the ways. Uh, he ended up suing his his brothers. I don't know if Fred was still alive, but he ended up suing both of his brothers, uh, claiming that they cheated him out of uh, his fair share of the business, that they lowballed the sale price to him. And that litigation uh, went on for a long time. So uh, he just picked up his toys and went to the East Coast. He has homes in Florida uh, and up north around Boston, started his own energy company. But his main passion is collecting. Everything, mm-hmm. art, wine, guns. Uh, he has uh, he has Custer's uh, pistol, General mm-hmm. Custer's pistol, and wow. uh, just a lot of uh, very old things. He just loves collecting, and uh, well, good thing he has a bunch doing. of houses to keep all he this does. stuff in. He does. Any more on the cokes? I didn't see anything else worth noting. I didn't know if you knew. I mean, you knew. That information about the collecting, um, all I knew prior to this was that, you know, I went to K-State and people from Wichita or not from Wichita, but who went to K-State wanted to get jobs at Coke Industries. So that's all I knew about it, really. I didn't even know what it was till today. Well, we should probably talk about one other character in our little drama uh, person, actually, for for whom... uh, this this wine is named the Jefferson <gasps> Thomas bottles. Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States mm-hmm. and a dedicated wine lover. He was uh, stationed in France uh, during the Revolutionary War. He was an ambassador to France and developed uh, developed quite a taste for wine. He was not a good money manager. He uh, he kept uh, kept getting into debt. He'd order wine and. Uh, didn't have a lot of money to pay for it, but that didn't stop him. He was selling his property back in the United States to get the money to support his habit. Uh, he would contact his friends back back home, like George Washington, and offer to buy wine for them and uh, 
General Washington would put in his order and Jefferson would go directly to the vineyard or the chateaus rather than rather than deal with wine merchants, because even back then, fake wine abounded. And if you bought it from an untrustworthy merchant, they were not above uh, getting really good wine and pouring half of it out or all of it out and just putting in lesser quality. So Jefferson would oftentimes go directly to the chateau and actually watch the wine being poured into the bottles and and take it. In one instance, Jefferson uh, wrote Washington and said, I have, uh, I have marked your bottles. And that's uh, one, one way that people thought that perhaps these were genuine when Jefferson said, I've marked your bottles with your initials and my bottles with my initials. So a lot of experts think it wasn't the bottles. They, these were sent in cases. He probably put initials on the cases rather than the, uh, rather than the bottles themselves. But uh, evidently, he was, he was quite the wine connoisseur to the point that uh, he bored people. At, at one point, uh, Tom, uh, John Adams, who was in Paris with him, uh, wrote his wife, Abigail, who was back in the United States, that he had had dinner with Jefferson the other night and uh, had to endure an interminable discussion on wine. John Adams was more of a beer drinker. <laughs> it's so funny thinking of these men as normal people having normal interests and like conversations yeah. with each other because yeah. they're so far back in history. Right. All you see is their painting or their portrait. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you don't even really think about who they were as people. Yeah. So yeah. it's so funny Yeah, that they just, he liked wine and he bored his friends talking about wine. Yeah. They sent in wine orders. Like how funny. I've, I've bored certain people talking about wine sometimes. Who? Well, someone who you know, we both know oh, and, oh, and, and, yeah. and, and love, and it's very right. close to us. <laughs> right. I was going to say, it's not me. No. <laughs> Someone who looks like you, though. Uh-huh. Right, right. I, I, I'm I, picking up what you're putting down. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's Thomas Jefferson. And, uh, you know, if these were, in fact, his wine bot, his, if this was his wine, it would be a historical find, but... Uh, I'm guessing probably not. Yeah. But like you said, still a good story. Thank you for sharing that. I can't believe I didn't even think to do my research on Thomas Jefferson. I'm glad one of us did. I thought we could also talk about common types of forgery because wine forgery is something pretty interesting that most people don't know about. Um, so I thought we'd look at some other ones. Art, I mean, that's an obvious one that people know about, but it is defined as the creating and selling of works of art, which are falsely credited to other, usually more famous artists. Art forgery can be extremely lucrative, but modern dating and analysis techniques have made the identification of forged artwork much simpler. So that's a pretty common one. Yeah documents this one is pretty topical right now oh yes and we will get to that uh, identity document forgery is the process by which identity documents issued by governing bodies are copied and or modified by persons not authorized to create such documents or engage in such modifications for the purpose of deceiving those who would view the documents about the identity or status of the bearer so what kind of document forgery is really popular right now? 
Well, gee, I'm thinking vaccination uh, cards. You are correct. And people are really getting arrested for this. I read uh, I read somewhere, I think it was in the New York Times last week, that uh, some guy is is making about $35,000 a week. Um, forging. Forging vaccination cards. Well, he gets caught. He's going to prison. Yes. They are not messing around with this COVID-19 vaccination. Yeah card forger and people were doing so hawaii was requiring vaccinations for people to come visit Mm because hawaii doesn't like people from the mainland bringing in sicknesses Mm -hmm. and so people were getting arrested in hawaii and one reason i know that is because my husband was in hawaii for a few days recently and that was a big thing happening jacob got arrested (laughs) <laughs> no. Oh, okay. He has a real vaccination oh, card. Oh, okay. <laughs> he just knew about it because he was in Hawaii. And that's where everyone's like trying to go after COVID. They're like, I want to go to Hawaii. And Hawaii's like, stay out. Well, so. you know, another document, forged document that uh very common and has been around forever, of course, are fake IDs. Mm-hmm. You know, since this is a, a show about cocktails, I'm just wondering if, any of our listeners would care to share stories anonymously, of course, about uh, fake documents that they may have had at one time or another. I actually would really be. I did not have a fake ID because my parents let me. Well, my dad let me drink wine, you know, try his wine. So I didn't feel the need to go out and drink. Great parenting, by the way. Honestly, I didn't feel the need to go out and drink. We do our best. <laughs> we do what we can. I'm 26 now. It's OK. Um, so. Anyway, I would be very interested to know how that whole process works of getting a fake ID. So you can send me a message and, you know, I won't say who it's from. Well, I never had one either, so don't know. We're such good citizens, Yes, we Dad. are. Yes, we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a third type of forgery is literary works. And I knew about this from the movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And it was first a book by Lee Israel and then... They made it into a movie starring Melissa McCarthy. Uh, so literary forgery is writing such as a manuscript or a literary work, which is either deliberately misattributed to a historical or invented author or is a purported memoir or other presumably nonfictional writing deceptively presented as true when, in fact, it presents untrue or imaginary information or content. So back to Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um Lee Israel, the book is about her life, and she was a she is a frustrated, hard-drinking author who can barely afford to pay her rent or bills in 1990s New York. Desperate for money, Israel soon hatches a scheme to forge letters by famous writers and sell them to bookstores and collectors. When the dealers start to catch on, Lee recruits a dubious friend to help her continue her self-destructive cycle of trickery and deceit. Mm. It's a great movie. Have you seen it? I have not, but I keep wanting to, but I just... I think it's on HBO. Maybe this week, next weekend or something. Yeah, it's a good movie. So do you have any famous autographs of famous people? Personally? Let's see. I have the autographs from people from some season of American Idol. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When David Cook won. None of Mm -hmm. them are still famous. Uh... Surely I do. Well, you have George Brett, mm-hmm. he's a Royals player. 
Come on. I truly do. I've met three of the guys from Queer Eye, but I don't I, have their... I was going to ask if you got an autograph from them. No, I, I wanted to be cool and mm-hmm. like not be one of those girls who's like, can I get a picture with you? <laughs> well, I did get a picture with Bobby because it, it was at an event where we were like, he knew he was going to have to take pictures. Jonathan and Anthony clearly wanted nothing to do with me, but I still said hi and they pet my dog and it was <laughs> cute. I don't think I have autographs from other famous people, though. How about you? Well, again, just the the George Brad and a few of the other royals back when they were actually good. But uh, I also have one from Dory Funk Jr. Who is that? You don't know. No. <laughs> Former world heavyweight wrestling champion. Oh, excuse me. Got that when I was like seven years old. He Ooh. was wrestling in... In Dalhart, Texas, and uh, he took my little paper, signed his name, and a drop of his sweat actually stained the piece of paper. So, do you still have it? Yes, I do. Wow. So, one of my prized possessions. Yes. So, uh, you know, you may you may inherit that someday when I cross the Rainbow Bridge. I can't wait. Yes. Oh, I also um, uh, Hannah Montana walked right by me. But mm-hmm. I did not get her autograph. But that was cool, too. Yeah. <laughs> and by Hannah Montana, of course, I mean Miley Cyrus. Yes. But she was in her wig. Well. D- Dad, I want to close out with you telling the listeners about the book. Well, I thought I kind of already did. I mean, it's called The Billionaire's Vinegar. So would you recommend it? I oh, absolutely. Again, it's just uh, it's just fascinating the story of of how all this came to be and and there were you know a, a couple of other things in there i didn't mention it might be worth mentioning at this point if i could go ahead uh the original uh, bottle that kip forbes paid $157,000 for uh was put on display in the forbes uh offices they put it in a case underneath a a light so that anybody entering the office could actually see it and of course, that is not how one should store two hundred year old wine. It should mm-hmm. be it should be in a dark cellar, climate controlled, not underneath a hot light bulb. So, mm-hmm. if this was actually old wine, it was certainly ruined by uh, the Forbes. Mm-hmm. But again, they didn't they didn't get it to drink. Right. Uh, they tell another story of of someone else who bought another bottle, and he took it to a tasting and and. Uh, was going to, I can't remember who this was, but he was going to show it off at the tasting and, and open it and actually let some of his friends sample some Jefferson wine. He dropped it. Oh, no. <laughs> that's something I would do. So, you know, we had like a hundred, $150,000 bottle of wine that, uh, or no, no, he did. Have, yeah, I think he did drop it. He had it in his pants pocket. And what? yeah, and and uh, the thing broke, and he's walking around with with this wine just dripping out of his dripping out of his pants. Um, but yes, I would I would absolutely um, I would absolutely recommend the Billionaire's Vinegar. Benjamin Wallace is the author. A couple other things I would I do want to mention if we have time. Um, you know, there, there, as you mentioned, there's all this other forgery out there, and some of it's easy to detect. Wine forgery is not easy to detect. Because uh, you don't drink the expensive Right. You're, ne- you're never going to open it. The only way you would know it's fake probably is if you open the bottle and do 
you taste it or you do the carbon tasting, but you know, people don't buy this wine to drink it. They buy it to show off mm-hmm. and to say, look what I have. So it's, it's very hard to detect. And, uh, Hardy Rodenstock was not the only person doing this. There's a, uh, there's a, a documentary called Sour Grapes on one of the streaming Netflix. services. It's Netflix about a, a, a gentleman named Rudy Kerwinian, I think is how it's pronounced. Anyway, he um, was a young man who came over from Indonesia, uh, ingratiated himself with a lot of collectors, and like Rodenstock, was able to find all this old wine. Uh, he was making supposedly... Two or three million dollars a year finding and selling old wine. Four hundred of the bottles in Steve Forbes' collections were purchased from Rudy, and uh, they're all fake as well. Uh, he was finally arrested, and they went into his apartment, and it just looked like uh, looked like a bottling plant. They said you had all sorts of old bottles, empty old bottles, with uh, cheap uh, Napa Valley wines that he was just fun- put using a funnel to put in the bottles, laser printers, uh, duplicating old wine labels and just sticking it on there and, and selling them for tens or if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a pop. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's out there. It's probably going on right now. And again, it's, it's hard to discover. I mean, mm-hmm. unless you've got some suspicion. And I think a lot of people probably suspect they have bottles, uh, forged bottles, but they don't really <laughs> They don't want to admit it because it makes them look silly. So there we have it. The billionaire's vinegar. And I was mistaken. Sour Grapes grapes is actually on Amazon Prime, not Netflix. Again, a very interesting, uh, very interesting way to spend a couple hours if you're into this thing. You know who knew how to store his wine? Who's that? Nick Parker from The Parent Trap. Ah, yes. He has the dream wine cellar. Yes. And he's able to track down all the bottles in existence of that 1982. Yes. Ah, so sweet. Yes. I'm trying to think of the line. I can't right now. We love the parent trap. Yes, we do. (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening. And next week, we are talking about H.H. Holmes, who who had created the murder castle. Or was it? Or was it? I haven't made my notes yet, so I'm excited. Well, we will see you all next week, and thanks for listening. Have a good have a good uh, week and a uh, good holiday. Yes, have a good holiday. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. 